What chatter refers to is when we get stuck in a negative cycle of thinking and feeling. So we turn our attention inward to try to figure out something about our lives. Why are we feeling the way we are? How can we problem solve? But rather than coming up with clear solutions, we end up worrying and ruminating and catastrophizing, turning negative experiences over in our head and not being able to extract ourselves out of that mess. That's what chatter is. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. As an award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and Ross School of Business, this guest utilizes and implements his research on how the conversations people have with themselves impacts their health, performance, decisions, and relationships, which inspired him to write his first book, Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. This guest research has been published in Science, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, among many others. He has also participated in policy discussions at the White House and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, The Economist, The Atlantic, Forbes, and Time. As an alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania as magna cum laude, this guest earned his PhD in psychology from Columbia University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in social effective neuroscience to learn about the neurosystems that support self-control. He moved to the University of Michigan in 2008, where he founded the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Ethan Cross. Dr. Ethan Cross, thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. You may not say that at the end of the conversation. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get into it. We know from research that there is this component to our inner voices that develops through our parents. There's a familial connection. Just for the listeners, what happens is that they give us these instructions as children, and then we start out by repeating these instructions out loud. Like We may have all seen that, kids repeating instructions to themselves. And what we eventually do is we internalize this monologue, and, and it eventually becomes our inner voice. How important do you think parents are in, in what ends up being that either healthy or unhealthy inner voice? I think parents and, and not just parents, but also our, our, um, our friends and those around us play a pivotal role in shaping our inner voice because they are giving us messages that we're then internalizing. Like, you know, if you think about how we're socialized, socialization is what teaches us you know, what's the right and wrong way to do things. So those are messages that are seeping into our minds. And as I talk about in chat, our inner voices. Um, so they play, they play a critical role. Uh, but I do want to emphasize two points. The, the way in which, you know, parents affect our inner voice, it actually goes both ways. Like how, how children respond and talk to their parents feeds back to influence the kinds of conversations parents have with themselves. And I speak 
here as a parent, you know, uh, oftentimes things that my daughters will say to me, I'll, I'll internalize some of their, their ideas in my own inner monologue. So, so the inner voice is malleable and it is powerfully shaped by, by the people around us, as well as the culture that we, the cultures that we interact in. So, so that was one point I wanted to emphasize. Is there any evidence to suggest that people can overcome either a negative familial influence to develop a positive voice or, or the vice versa? Well, I think, you know, the, the inner voice and, and is, is, it's very malleable. So I'm not a, I think humans have a great deal of agency that we possess the ability if we are finding ourselves going down the wrong path in terms of how we're thinking about or approaching life, we have the ability to to modify that, to change the way we think, to change the way we feel. And that goes with our inner voice too. We have the ability to change the kinds of conversations we're having with ourselves if we find them not working for us. And so if people find themselves repeating messages that maybe were uh, bestowed upon them, you know, by their parents that aren't particularly productive. Yeah, I think we have a, the ability to to change those narratives. Now, we can also go in the opposite direction. We can take a healthy inner monologue and, and take it into the unhealthy territory too, and that that often happens as well. So, so I don't think our our early experiences help shape how we think about the world. But it shapes it shapes how we think about the world. It doesn't determine how we think about the world. And I think that's an important distinction for listeners to be mindful of. What is that distinction between that healthy inner monologue? Because obviously that healthy there is a healthy component to the inner monologue that keeps us grounded in our personalities. But when does that cross over into something that you describe as chatter? It's a great question. Um, so, and it's not just about positivity versus negativity. I think we hear a lot nowadays about the need to just always be positive and not experience negative thoughts. Negative thoughts in small doses are really quite helpful. Uh, you know, negative emotions, according to many, and certainly I believe this, are are functional. We've evolved the capacity to experience negative emotions for a reason. When I experience anxiety, for example, prior to a big um, uh, even a small, you know, public speech. That, <laughs> what do you that's say? Healthy, right, right. Like that. That's that's healthy, right? It, it it makes me prepare. It's a cue that says, okay, Ethan, time to time to get going. So so negative emotions aren't something that we want to move away from. They're also not in and of themselves chatter. What chatter refers to is when we get stuck in a negative cycle of thinking and feeling. So we turn our attention inward to try to figure out something about our lives. Why are we feeling the way we are? How can we problem solve? But rather than coming up with clear solutions, we end up worrying and ruminating and catastrophizing, turning negative experiences over in our head over and over and over again, and, and not being able to extract ourselves out of that mess. That's what chatter is. It's It really refers to those negative thought loops uh, rather than just experiencing a negative thought per se. You spoke about the evolutionary need for those negative emotions, which I think is fascinating. But is there an evolutionary component to chatter then? Well, I think um, I think when we experience chatter, that is a sign of us taking a tool that is otherwise very functional and using it in a way that is not functional. So I think it's a byproduct of, of evolution um, and our inability to, to, to perfectly optimize the way we use the tools that evolution has endowed us with. 
Is there any evidence to suggest that chatter, as you're describing it, has been increasing over a historical period of time? Or is it something that's kind of steady state and not really affected by our, our current day? Well, I think temporarily right now, you know, we're, we're talking in the context of a, of a worldwide pandemic and there is, there is lots of evidence suggesting that, that chatter and the kinds of problems that often contributes to like anxiety and depression are skyrocketing. So I think we're, we're living through um, a, a pretty incredible chatter event. And I don't mean incredible in a positive way. With respect to whether it's been steadily increasing over longer stretches of time, that's a really hard question to answer, in part because we haven't been recording people's levels of rumination and worry the same way and over long stretches of time. It's only relatively recently that we've, we've you know, recently in the history of our species that we've started recording um, using using good measures people's propensity to to experience chatter i do think that chatter has been around with us probably for as long as we've you know been using language silently to to introspect about our lives uh you know i i sometimes describe chatter as a as a kind of it's a biblical problem right i mean like if you think back to like adam and eve and the snake and the worry about the apple and what she should do you know there are there there are instances of people talking about the mind running awry for for ages. I mean, this was a topic in ancient Eastern and Western philosophy. So I think this has been around for quite some time. And the good news is that we are more recently using science now to figure out how to address it. This might be a dumb question. Well, another dumb question. No, is, no. <laughs> is the rate of chatter... Is it predictive of success, do you think? A higher level being, like, is it inversely related? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence indicating that what chatter can do is undermine our ability to perform well at work or on the sports field or at school and interfere with our ability to focus. And to the extent that performance and focus are, are useful for for doing well in life, then yeah, I think there are strong links between chatter and succeeding. Um, uh, so, so just to give you an example, you know, one of the ways that chatter can undermine our ability to perform well is it occupies our attention. Like, so when we experience chatter, we are, we are consumed by the problem to the point where we have trouble thinking about anything else. And the, the example I like to give people is to think about a time when they tried reading a few pages in a book when they were worried or ruminating about something. Many people report having the experience of knowing that they read four or five pages, but not being able to remember anything that they read because their mind was somewhere else. So, you know, if you think about like, oftentimes we've got to focus to be successful at work. And so if our mind is somewhere else, that's not a good thing. Uh, the same thing goes for our ability to perform. If you're, if you're so concerned about your ability to give a good speech or, or hit a home run or catch the ball or, you know, strike the tennis tennis ball with your racket perfectly, that can lead um, to impairments in your ability to perform in those domains. And that's been shown time and time again. So if people are experiencing chatter chronically over time, then yeah, I think it can have some really negative implications for their lives. It is important to point out that some people can experience chatter in some contexts, but not others. So it's not like 
you're either high chatter or low chatter. Uh, some people, for example, might have a propensity to experience chatter in their personal relationships, but not so much at work or vice versa. And so there are a lot of different chatter profiles that characterize people. I want to share why well, I hope you're okay if I share something is there's a an individual named Todd Herman. He wrote a book called The Alter Ego Effect, and he gives an example of Kobe Bryant referring to himself as the Black Mamba and and he would step into this kind of alter ego or this additional personality in order to perform at his best. Do you think there's any parallels between that kind of that third person perspective versus as a method to combat chatter or to improve your performance? I do. So, you know, one of the one of the things we know about chatter is that it tends to zoom us in on our problems, right? We get tunnel vision. We're focused very narrowly on what's what's bothering us and we get caught in a thought loop around it. And so uh, what science has revealed is that one approach to combating that experience is to zoom out, to take a step back and try to think about your experience from a broader perspective. And adopting a third person perspective is one way to do it. We know it's a lot easier for people to advise other people on their problems than it is to take that advice ourselves. And so adopting an alter ego and, and, you know, the black mamba is one example of that, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. Uh, we find, for example, that people can, when people use what we call distant self-talk, when they try to coach themselves through a problem using their own name, even that's effective, right? So if you think about when do we use names, we typically use names when we think about and refer to other people. And turns out a lot of people, when they're consumed with chatter, will reflexively try to start to coach themselves through a problem using their own name, like they're coaching someone else. All right, Ethan, what are we going to do here? And we find that, that that can be useful for helping people take a step back and think about their situation more objectively. And it actually helps people give themselves advice like they would someone else, which which we find is often so useful. So I do think that that uh, alter ego can be useful. We're on the topic of distant self-talk, which I have found personally so helpful as I've implemented it in my own life. And I know in the book, you mentioned Malala does this. LeBron James has been you know, known to do this. Is there any evidence, do we know if that's something that's practiced regularly? Does that distant self-talk referring to yourself in the third person, does that over the long term offer relief from chatter? Well, so we do know that, um, so we have some unpublished data uh, in which we're looking at this question of spontaneity. Um, when do people spontaneously use distant self-talk? There's, there's, there's laboratory evidence that when you tell people to do this, like you in the context of, context of an experiment, that it helps people reason more wisely about problems, perform better under stress, regulate their emotions more effectively. Uh, and there's certainly anecdotal evidence that people are more likely to engage in this form of distant self-talk when they're under stress. Um, increasingly now we're, we're getting some, some data to bear on this. And we do, there does seem to be some evidence that stress activates this. So the more stressed you are, the more likely you are to, uh, to actually start talking to yourselves in the third person silently, like you often see, uh, happen, happen out there in the world. Um, in our data, in our unpublished data, the, the rates were actually higher than, uh, than what, what I would have expected. I, I, you know, don't quote me on this. I don't have the data right in front of me, but I want to say it was around like 15 to 20% of the time that people were trying to um, 
prepare themselves to do something stressful, they slipped into using this third person self-talk and it actually led them to, to feel better in those instances over time. So, um, so that, that'll hopefully be coming soon to, to a journal near you. Do you think that there's an evolutionary component to that? Is that your suspicion or is it a learned behavior? This is a fantastic question, um, and it's one we're asking in our lab. So we're trying to figure out, like, it seems like we've stumbled on this tool, and it's not clear how exactly we've learned it. And I think there are lots of, you know, potential explanations for how we've learned it, but we don't yet know the answer. Like, one idea that we're playing around with in the lab is that when, when you know, when... Uh, one of the first ways that children learn self-control is through their interactions with their parents and caregivers, like we talked about earlier. So little kids, their mom and dad say, okay, Ethan, don't do this. Don't put your hand near the stove. Never do that. And then what kids do is they go off in a corner and they often then repeat those lessons to themselves out loud. Like if, if you've been around kids, you've probably seen them talking to themselves out loud, right? So that's how we think one of the ways that they first learn self-control is by repeating to themselves what their what their parents are, are repeating to them. And so they're repeating the lesson, okay, Ethan, don't do this. They're also learning at a very young age that, hey, when my mom or dad is really trying to get me to do something, they do something weird. They use their parent title. So like I'll often say to my kids, Daddy doesn't want you to do that. Daddy wants you to do this. I don't just say, I want. I don't want you to do this. So they're also learning. They're getting information about what they should and shouldn't do. And they're also often hearing their parents give them that information in the third person, right? And so, so one of the ideas we have is that they're through observational learning, they're figuring out, hey, when my mom or dad is stressed, they're doing this funky thing. They're referring to themselves using their title. So maybe I should do that when I'm stressed. And so we're trying to tease that apart in the lab um, to figure out where this this tool comes from, where people learn it. It almost sounds like it's a bit of a comforting mechanism that it's going back to your childhood. It's almost like curling up on the floor and, and bringing your knees into your chest. I, I think of that as something that is like an evolutionarily learned behavior. Do you see any parallels with, with that? Well, you know... It, it, it's evolutionary learned. It's always hard to, yeah. <laughs> um, it's always hard to, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to, to weigh into those um, ideas with data. But I, what I will say is, and I think I suspect this is where you and I may agree. Uh, I think during times of stress, we find people often reverting to very primitive and basic forms of, of, uh, basic tools and forms of self-control. Like, you know, think about touch, right? Like touch is one of the, is the first ways we, we are soothed when we come out of the womb. We're held by our parents. When we're not feeling well, we get hugs and, 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 and embraces when we're, we're young. And we know that touch later on in life can be a really powerful tool, as, too, as a tool for regulating our, ourselves when we're experiencing chatter. And I think we may be something seeing something similar when it comes to distant self-talk, right? Like this is a tool that we may use early on when we're coaching ourselves through a problem as kids. Okay, Ethan, don't put your toy here, put it here. And we revert back to this during times of stress later on in life. That's a, that's a conjecture. It's an idea that, uh, again, we don't have the data for just yet, but, um, but I think it's a really important question. Why isn't this taught? Well, it's not taught because I don't think we 
Um, I don't think it's on the radar. And with distant self-talk in particular, what's been interesting to me about this tool, we've been doing a lot of research on it over the past uh, 10 plus years, is people often do it without even knowing that they're doing it. And so where I think the science comes into play is the what the science helps do is show, okay, here's how it works and here's why it works. And I think once we have that information, uh, it then becomes much uh, easier for us to, to translate it for people, to explain it. Here's, you know, here's the information on it, and then it becomes possible to teach it. But I think we know a lot of things about how the mind works and you know, tools that could be helpful for allowing people to harness it that we don't teach people. In fact, one one project that I'm involved in right now involves taking what we know about the science of managing ourselves and and translating that science into a curriculum for middle and high school kids so that we could teach them about the mind. Uh, I think there's, there's value in, in just learning about how their mind is for the sake of learning in the same way that we spend time teaching kids about you know, how the digestive system works or trigonometry. Don't you think learning how the digestive system works is much more important than learning how the mind works? I actually... I'm kidding. Oh, okay. I was going to... You were going to tee me up there. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. The, for all the, the... I mean, I am exquisitely informed about the intricacies of peristalsis, but, um, you know, short of explaining to my each of my daughters once how it's possible to eat food upside down without coming it coming out of your nose. Like I don't use my my knowledge of peristalsis very often in daily life. Um, so so you're just playing you're having fun with me. That's that, that's Sorry. cool. No no no, all yeah. good. <laughs> that's the toolbox project you're referring to, is it? That's right. That's right. This toolbox project where we think, you know, number one, there's there's value in just knowing about how the mind works, right? Um, arguably like some important educational value in that. But but one of the things we're doing in this project is we want to see what implications does having that knowledge have for student achievement, relationships, health. So like does giving this information actually make a difference in their lives? And the the analogy here is like when you teach children math, like how to compute, let's say a percentage, like that's information that we use. Like quite a bit, I would argue. Like you go, you go to a restaurant and you have to compute a tip. How do you do that? Right? Like useful, practical information. The idea is that behind this toolbox project is to the degree that understanding how to manage your emotions is a useful skill, then if we give kids this information, they should be able to call upon that information later on in life when they need it, when they're anxious, when they're angry, when they're depressed. And, um, and, you know, we're not going to take that assumption for granted. We're actually testing this idea rigorously in the form of a clinical trial. So we will we will hopefully at some point soon, if COVID cooperates, have some data to, to see whether our assumptions about this were, are right or not. Do you have any information on that yet? No, we were supposed to do a, we've been doing pilot work. You know, this has been several years in the making this project. Our first step was to work with, with uh, curriculum experts and teachers to take the science and make it into high school and middle school friendly lesson plans. We did that. We then did another pilot to make sh- to see if kids go through this curriculum, do they actually learn the information? So if you assess their knowledge of self-control 
and emotion management at the start and end of the curriculum, do you see gains? And we encouragingly, encouragingly find that we do. The final step was to do the, the large scale clinical trial that was supposed to happen last fall, but uh, COVID had other plans. And so, so the idea is that we'll do it next year if COVID cooperates. I'm sure so many people are listening to you and just thinking that why didn't we learn this in school and and hearing what you're describing as this toolbox. I just wish that I had something like this because I think a lot of us are just left out in the open to try and create these tools for ourselves. And it's kind of a an ad hoc, take one from here and one from here. But what you're describing just sounds so, so important for kids and adults. Yeah, completely. And this is, you know, the the motivation behind the toolbox project was actually an experience I had in the classroom where I had taught a seminar on the science of, of self-control. It's, you know, science is greatest hits when it comes to understanding how to control your emotions and thoughts. And uh, at the end of the class, the final day, a student asked me like, why are we learning about this now? Why hasn't anyone taught us about this earlier? And that question really stuck with me. I did not have a good explanation. So, um, you know, I think there's real value in this and just just speaking to different people over the past several years about this project and also about my book, Chatter, which talks about a bunch of these tools. Um, what I've seen is that there is a real thirst that people have for understanding like how the mind works when it comes to controlling our emotions and, and knowing about what tools they can use. But there's such variability in terms of the quality of information that's out there. Like there's a lot of information that's not, it's not science-based. It's, you know, it's, it's intuition-based. And sometimes those intuitions are, are on target, but in other case, in cases there's, they're not. And so I do think there is a lot that we have that we can share with people to, to hopefully help them improve their lives, help them follow through with their goals, achieve their goals. And so, um, so that's one big motivation both behind this toolbox project and also behind writing, writing chatter. I want to take a second, well, 15 seconds, to tell you briefly about my own experience reading chatter. I found the book brought to light these common challenges around rumination that I'd been dealing with and gave me really easy to use tips to overcome it. I also left with a way better understanding of how to support others when they're going through challenges. So if you're somebody struggling with rumination or dealing with problems in your life, then this is a great resource. How important has Walter Michelle been and where you've ended up and the path you've taken? Well, you know, Walter Michelle was my advisor, my mentor, and he played a, a huge role in shaping the way that I think, shaping my inner voice, if you will. Uh, and really teaching me how how to do science. How do you take, uh, you know, when I think about what we do in psychology and what we, we do in, in teaching graduate students, I think the, the really amazing thing about a PhD in psychology is you, you're giving people tools to ask and then answer using the scientific method questions about human nature. And so how do you do that? How do you find a good question? How do you then study it rigorously and then write about it for others in a way that gets them excited and interested? And Walter, uh, Walter helped me help teach me how to do all those things. And so, um, you know, he was uh, he was an amazing mentor, and I very much uh, uh, miss him. Giant. 
he was giant in the field. For those who, who aren't familiar with his name, he, he was the he was the scientist who developed the marshmallow test, the delay of gratification paradigm. So you give kids a choice between having one treat now or two treats later, and the kids who wait longer end up having better self-control. Um, yeah, giant in the field and giant in my life. And so uh, it's bittersweet that I wasn't able to share chatter with him before he passed away. I was the kid that took the marshmallow for sure. I think Walter would be totally fine with that because one of his one of his you know big pushes, big ideas was that uh, you can improve self control, and so even though you might have taken the marshmallow right away, um, there you've probably learned some some tools for regulating yourself. I would imagine over time that you're using uh, you're using well to get where you are today. Well, your book has been a big help in that. And in the book, you talk about Solomon's paradox, which gives a parable that King Solomon from biblical times was this incredibly wise leader. And he, he gave this awesome, great advice to those that would seek his wisdom. But then in his personal life, he would just make these awful decisions where, you know, he would have a hundred wives, for example, and it ended up leading to the fall of his civilization. It's kind of the modern day equivalent, I think, of the individual that can give great advice to other people but of course struggles to execute in their own life and kind of wonders, you know, what did I do wrong? What advice do you have for the King Solomons out there? Well, I think recognizing a, that this asymmetry exists in our ability to reason wisely about other people's problems versus our own. And really in, in, in terms of helping our ability to help other people with their chatter versus help ourselves, recognizing that that's, a reality, I think, is step one. Uh, step two is, you know, knowing that tools exist that can help us overcome that asymmetry. I think is 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 very important, and I talk about a lot of those tools in the book. So we and we've already talked about one. You know, if we're better at advising other people on their problems than we are ourselves, what if we think about ourselves like we were another person? Lots of people have already stumbled on how to do that using language, right? So. Use your use your name, distant self-talk. That's one way of bridging that gap. And and there are likely and not likely, there are many other tools that exist along those lines. So um, you know, as I think this is this is this is a place where knowing about how the human mind works in this way, like knowing what a potential shortcoming is for all of us, gives us the edge because it allows us to then take measures to to deal with that issue when we find ourselves in that situation. So I will often find myself slipping into Solomon's paradox in my own life. Like, oh God, what should I do? And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then and then I I I I I I honestly I use this tool and many others as well to to not fall in, fall victim to um to, to that bias. What are some of those other tools you use? Well, I talk to I talk to other people to get their perspective, but I talk to I'm very deliberate about who I choose to speak to. So, you know, other people are in really a great position to help us work through our chatter because as we've just said, we know people are better at giving us giving advice to others. They're not in the situation, they've got distance from it. Uh, but but sometimes you have to find the right people to talk to because one of the ways that talking to other people about our chatter can go wrong is when you find someone to talk to and all they end up doing is get you, they just get you to vent your feelings. 
that can lead you to feel really close and connected to that person. So it can enhance your friendship with them, but it doesn't it doesn't really provide you with solutions to the problem, right? It doesn't give you a new way to think about the situation to let you work through it and overcome it. Instead, people end up slipping into what we call co-rumination or uh, like a collective vent session, which we know can um, lead the problem to persist over time. So, so the, when I try to find people to talk to about my chatter, it's people who can do two things people who can first be there to empathically listen and hear me, but not just do that. People who can then also take the next step to try to nudge me to think differently about the problem. And it could be as simple as, you know, pointing out that, hey, you've dealt with something like this before. You got through it then. What did you do? You know, can you do that again now? It could be something other like, uh, the person telling me, hey, I've experienced something similar in my life. Here's what I've done. So like slight shifts to try to get me to change the way I think about the, the problem can be very helpful. And there are certain people in my life who are really good at, at helping me do that. So that's just one other tool to help avoid Solomon's paradox. Uh, you know, we could we could go through them, all of them if you want. But like there, there are, I think I talked about 20, 20 different ones in the book. And, um, and you know, I think the real challenge for listeners is to figure out what are the specific tools that work best for them in the different situations they find themselves in. What what scientists have done, I think, reasonably well is identify specific tools. What we haven't yet figured out is how they blend together to help people, uh, different people in different situations. And so I think that's a challenge that that we all face, figuring that out. This idea of co-rumination of going to somebody and expressing how you feel and that person then going deeper and deeper and deeper is in many ways, I think, what chatter is. It's chatter, but doing it with another person because you just get narrower on narrower and narrower and narrower on that problem. What does avoidance of that co-rumination look like from the person receiving that feedback? So if I'm if somebody's coming to me with a challenge, what does good look like in that situation to help that person through? Well, good is taking the time to first listen, learn about the person's problem, what happened, how they felt. You want to be there to, to show empathy, to validate the experience, to validate that other person's experience, to, to have them know that there's someone else here that cares enough about them to take the time to listen. Like that's really important, right? The trick is to not just stop there, which is what often happens. We just do that. We keep and we keep on getting people to keep telling us about how they felt and what happened over and over again. At some point, what you want to do during the conversation is start trying to shift shift the conversation to help people go broader, to think about different ways of of working, you know, how might they reframe this experience? How might they come up with a solution to work through it? Um, now, figuring out when exactly to do that is is not clear cut. Like, I wish I could give you um, a very concrete recommendation, like talk to people about their emotions for 45 seconds and then start asking questions. That's not <laughs> how it works, right? Like different people Take, take require a different amount of time before they feel like they've really been heard and you want them to feel heard. But once they're heard, then you want to shift. And you can ask people when you're talking, hey, so you, can I give you my, you, you want you want me to give you my advice for how we might shift this? Or, or you just subtly try, have you thought about this? 
you know, like there's a bit of an art to it, um, which is hard, you know, as a scientist, like it's interesting, right? Because I'm not about art. I'm about cold, hard facts, but there is an artistry involved in being a good support provider for others. It's knowing when you can get in there to try to start helping them think more broadly. And it varies from person to person. So I think step one is just being aware that your job as a support provider is to do both of these things rather than just being there to just listen. I think that's an important uh, recognition that can be useful and it can guide what you do um, with the person who comes to you for help uh, once you start talking with them. If our goal is to find people that can support us in the situation in the way that you recommend to avoid this co-rumination, and we want to create a, a chatter board of advisors, what does that process look like of finding out who should be on that chatter board of advisors? Or is there one? Well, you know, um, for me, it's really based on trial and error. It's it's based on the conversations I've had with people. And I learn pretty quickly whether talking to someone about uh, a problem leads me to feel worse about it uh, versus um, helps me find solutions about, you know, and I remember that information. I use it to guide who I confront, not confront, approach for advice and support <laughs> moving forward. Like there, there are people in my life who I love very much and who I know love me. I don't go to them for help with my problems because I know they'll that they'll be there to listen to me. But they just make them worse because they just get me to vent about it over and over again. And, you know, the feeling I have when I, I co-ruminate with them is it feels great to know that they're there to hear, to, to be there for me. And 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 I and there's something enjoyable about connect, com, commiserating with someone, but I don't solve the problem. I often leave those conversations with even more chatter because the problem's still alive and active in my head. So I try not to talk to those people about my my. Um, my chatter. And instead I talk to people who, who do listen and, and let me express myself, but then help me find solutions. Is there any research that you've done or research that's been done on how effective a chatter board of advisors is in overcoming chatter in someone's life? Well, there's some work which shows that the more people you have that you can turn to for support during times of distress, the better. And, um, and different people, and and there are different people that you could turn to in different domains to serve those goals. That's the extent of it to which I'm I'm aware, though. Um, so so there's work. So the more people you have, you could turn to, the better. Um, which is certainly consistent with this idea behind the the board of advisors. I want to wrap up here in just a little bit, and I want to hopefully kind of create this little bit of a package and through an example. I, so I played uh, lots of baseball growing up and, and fairly competitively played on like a provincial team in Canada, which would kind of be similar to like a state team in the US. And we were in a tournament and I was hitting the shit out of the ball, like seven, I was hitting 750. Um, and I remember this exact one moment where there was, I was playing second base, there was a ball hit up the middle and I grabbed it and I thought I was cool and Derek Jeter. And so I did that mm -hmm. move that Derek Jeter always did where he jumped up in the air and he threw the ball and it sailed over the first baseman's head over the fence behind him out of the ballpark. And there was a used car lot behind that sailed over all the fans and then into the used car lot, probably 200 feet away. And that moment changed my life because 
from then on, I had what you describe as chatter, where mm-hmm. I couldn't throw the baseball to save my life. I would throw it over the first baseman's head. I would throw it into the dirt. And we're talking, like, if you don't know baseball, this is a throw that's 40 feet. It was just absolutely destructive to my self-confidence and and belief in myself and eventually kind of derailed what could have been a base, like a very tiny baseball career. Mm-hmm. What what kind of advice would you give to that 14-year-old kid that thought he just could never overcome this chatter? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, and, and your story reminds me of, of Rick Ann Keel's story, which I tell in the book, which it was, uh, um, you know, an up-and-coming phenom pitcher uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals who who likewise uh, had chatter unravel his career. So, uh, you know, for the kid who's in that situation, I think – Number one, understanding what's going on is useful. So uh, here's how overthinking can get in the way of a throw um, and, and lead, lead, lead like an automatic movement that you've mastered over the course of your life to you know, not work. And then I think there are, there are practices that you could try to implement to try to help with that. For example, you know, like rituals are often useful for managing the mind before high stakes situations. Um, you know, like you see lots of professional athletes, like right before they have to do something where there's a potential for the inner voice to perk up and interfere with the motion, like a free throw on the basketball line, they'll do a ritual to try to knock that nasty voice out temporarily. Um, uh, so I would, I would recommend that they try the different tools that exist that science has revealed for managing those situations and try different combinations of them to figure out which ones work best. Uh, ultimately, what you want to do is make that make that um, uh, throw automatic again, right? Like the problem I'm guessing for you is that like most people, every time you had to make the throw, you started thinking about it. And once you started thinking about it, it was all over. So the question is, how do you stop doing that? And I think some of the practices... Um, that I talk about in the book can be useful towards that end. What do you wish interviewers asked you about chatter that they don't? It's a good question. Is there a single magic bullet for managing it? And, um, I, I, and the reason I, I wish that they'd ask me that is because I don't think there is. Um, and I don't think that's a ending on a negative either. I think we're often looking for for single magic bullets. Um, I think we have evolved the capacity to manage our chatter through multiple pathways. And I think we should try to learn something from the fact that we have all of these different tools at our disposal. One of the things that suggests to me is that we have these different tools for a reason. So let's, let's not try to just find one, one magic fix, but try to use the range of tools that we have at our disposal to help us. And, you know, that's a place where I think science can help steer us. And, and part of the reason I wrote the book. That's a beautiful place to end. Dr. Cross, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to chat with us. You are obviously somebody that has achieved really remarkable things in your life and achieve remarkable things with the book Chatter. You are somebody that is obviously consistently striving for more in your own life. And so I'm just really grateful that you sat down with us today. And for the listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Cross and his book, Chatter, you can find that on his website at ethancross.com. That's K-R-O-S-S. And you can buy the book there. Dr. Cross, 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Tons of fun. If you like this episode, you might also like episode number 29 with Katie Weika, where we talk about improving our emotional intelligence and our mental toughness. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.